Welcome to Talk is Jericho's The Pot of Thunder and Rock and Roll and AEW Unrivaled Series 4 was revealed last month. It's going to include action figures for Kenny Omega, Sammy Guevara, Matt Hardy, Cody, and Santana and Ortiz. So the first action figures ever for Sammy and Santana and Ortiz and Matt Hardy's first AEW figure. They'll be out in May, but you can pre-order these now at Ringside Collectibles. And the man behind the AEW toy line, Jeremy Padower from Jazzwares Toys, is here on Talk is Jericho today to explain exactly how these action figures are made, how they decide which talent to release and which lines, and how come they've been so hard to find for the last year. Jeremy also made action figures for the WWE for years, talks about working for Vince McMahon, creating the classic superstars line, and what inspired his approach to the figures in the first place. He's also an avid collector himself, and not just of wrestling action figures. Wait to hear about some of the cool and very valuable items he purchased just recently. And Jeremy's on the lookout for a 1993 Topps Mexico Corazon de Leon card. Uh, and if you have one, you better tell me first, but th- then you can hit up Jeremy. But first, you're going to hear uh, what he's willing to pay for one in graded high condition. This is the first uh, uh, sports card I ever had. So we're talking wrestling action figures, sports cards, AEW action figures, and uh, when you can see uh, figures for Eddie Kingston and Anna Jay, and which will be released this year. Jeremy also reveals why they're doing another printing of the series, one line, and when you might be able to get that. So Jeremy Padawar and AEW action figures starting now on Talk is Jericho. So I had this idea for a while to talk to Jeremy Padawar about basically the AEW action figures and wrestling action figures in general. And we'll get all into that, but but getting to know Jeremy a little bit, you are super into the whole collectibles experience, not just action figures, but it seems like trading cards and just everything. Like it's, have you kind of devoted your whole life to this? Yeah. You know, you know, it's interesting. Uh, toys and collectibles are like synonymous with one another, right? So the right. same mentality that likes to play and explore is the same type that wants to put at least part of their investment portfolio into collectible assets. And so for me, I've lived my whole life collecting and I've watched something that was at one point kind of, you know, out there become a very acceptable class of where to put some money. So you were just saying that you were looking at uh, wrestling cards right now. And I remember like collecting those in the 80s and, and, and that sort of thing. So what kind of cards are you, are you really delving into? So last night, there was a, a big auction on golden auctions. And so there's various ways that you can transact wrestling cards. eBay, there's big auction houses. But it's a whole thing right now in the card world, specifically in wrestling. It's like a, a big renaissance period. Last night, a Andre the Giant 1982 Wrestling All-Stars card that is graded BGS 9.5, which means it's right below perfect, sold for just under $50,000. And today, there's a Hulk Hogan from that same series that is a BGS, which is Beckett Grading Services, nine and a half. And it looks like it's going to blow past that. Now, keep in mind, I bought a BGS nine and a half Hogan about 18 months ago for $2,800. So the appreciation wow. in this asset class is astonishing. And it is, there's, it's showing no signs of let up. And frankly speaking, it's way behind the other major sports. It seems so like I, I guess you'd have to find because I used to have a, like a comic collection when I was a kid, and I had I bagged and boarded it and kept them all in filing cabinets and you know a, a temperature 
controlled room, you know, basically, which was just my bedroom, but try and keep the temperature. But then you, you get to the point where when you have all of this stuff and it's worth X, 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 and X, you have to find somebody that's going to buy it from you, right? So is there a whole kind of underworld of, of collectors? So when you buy this Hogan card for 50 grand or 60 grand or 70 grand, that in a couple of years, someone will be able to go, I'll pay you 100 grand for that? Or is it a great investment that, that will never pay off? Things have changed. So it used to be the underground and now it's the overground. I'm going to make up a new word called the overground. And that's where you, <laughs> that's where you live now. That's where your 1993 Tops Mexico Corazon de Leon card lives in the overground. Actually, there's only been four or five of those ever found, ever. So really? that's how remarkable that card is in terms of graded. It's one of the rarest cards. It is a grail card. I can't even imagine what that card would sell for in great condition. But here's the but just before that, I remember that it was uh, I think it was like a Tops or Opeachy or something like that in Mexico. And I was really surprised because, I, I mean, who knows where the card is now? But I remember that first card and I was thinking there's Tops in Mexico. <laughs> yeah, right. And it was interesting. It was an interesting time in the early 90s because they were coming off this enormous time for cards. Cards were huge in the late 80s. I mean, you probably bought a few cards yourself because oh, everybody God. was buying cards at that time. But I will tell you this, Chris, I will tell you this. The difference between then and now is, is night and day. And here are the reasons. Number one, to go back to your question, it is so easy to transact now. It is so easy to transact for two reasons. One, eBay's out there constantly. Right. You don't have to go to a card show. You can look at all the sold auctions and you can rank by highest right, price, exactly. lowest price on anything that you're looking for. And you have a really good idea when, how, and where it's sold. And then, auction houses and fractional share systems like rally where they'll literally buy an asset and then do, do a filing with the sec and when they do a filing they'll sell shares of an asset it's unbelievable the world today i'm just telling you and then one last note there's a whole grading system okay so for instance if a chris jericho card uh, has twenty thousand that have been submitted for grading and only 50 are psa 10 perfect graded those cards could be worth a hundred times what a PSA right, right, right. five is worth. So it's really no longer a scenario where it feels like there's a lot of missing information. Now it's just a massive amount of information at your fingertips. So when you're trading, you have practically the same information you have when you're trading stocks. Comics were like that too. Like you had the grading. I remember I used to have the, the, the comic book. CGC. Was it, yeah, the comic book grading guide or whatever it was. And you'd get that every year. And you'd look through it and you would grade them. And I would go through, I remember like I had like a Superman or sorry, a spider, amazing Spider-Man number 17 that I found in my aunt's like uh, uh, cabin. And it was just like, it was a like, perfect condition. And I was like, oh, it's worth $200, but it's like, you know, I'll never sell it. And then it's like, who the hell am I going to sell it to back in 1983? Now you could probably go online and, and, and look that up. Oh, there's no question. You could look it up at every possible grade and every grade is like from two to 10 and every grade is broken down literally between, it's like nine, eight, nine, six, nine, four, all the way down. And what I would say to you is find those comic books. If you can find them somewhere in Canada, the United States, <laughs> Mexico, I don't know where you stashed your comics, Chris, but you need to find them. They are <laughs> remarkable. <laughs> so let me ask you this, just one more question. So how much is the, uh, is the Corazon de Leon uh, card worth? Because you said there's hardly any of them out there. I mean, if someone has one and graded in high condition, I, I will tell you, I'll pay 10 grand for it right now. Wow. <laughs> you know, what's funny, dude, is so I just moved uh, into a new house about 18 months ago. And as I was moving out, I had 
since 1979, a Wayne Gretzky Edmonton Oilers rookie card. Oh, yeah. And what we used to do is you would take a milk carton and you would cut it in half. And then you would put the, the cards in the cart. So this thing was pressed straight. Like, dude, it was perfect. And I had it set out in my, like, upstairs kind of little office area. I go to move. I can't find this freaking thing anywhere. And I looked at every box, every nook, every cranny. And it's like, where the hell did this thing go? And my wife is like, well, maybe one of the maids took it. I mean, the maids don't know who Wayne Gretzky is in Florida. <laughs> you know, somebody coming in from, from Cuba or whatever. They don't know who Wayne Gretzky is. Nobody stole this thing. Where is it? And, dude, I never did find it. And, and then you read like, oh, Gretzky rookie card, perfect edition, sold for 500 grand or whatever it was. And I'm like... Yeah. I had one. My whole life I kept it going, this is going to be worth something someday. Well, I'm going to blow your mind because one just sold for $1.25 I mean, come on, man. That's just that's just kicking a man when he's down. Thanks a lot. Uh, you're going to find it. I know you're going to find it. It's with your comic books. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's got to be here somewhere. I, I remember, like, I looked, and then I found the cards, and I looked through everything. It's got to be here. Where did it go? But um, but anyways, it's so amazing to me because because like you said, then we can kind of go to to the action figures now. Just how in demand even the the, the first series of the AEW action figures were crazy. To where um, there's and we can talk about all of this stuff because I believe the last one of the last things I did before the lockdown was the New York was it the New York Toy Fair? Yeah, that's right. And and you were there in February, and you came to our showroom. Uh, which is very large. I mean, Jazz yeah. is now one of the top seven toy companies in the world. And you walked back and it was very thoughtful. Uh, actually, your whole team, it was amazing. Actually, let me, let me step back and just say that when you work in consumer products, you are on the periphery of the good stuff, right? The good stuff happens w with the creative and the talent and all that stuff. You probably go into consumer products because you love the underlying content. Mm -hmm. And so for me, you know, I'm attracted to it. I, I've always loved it. I've loved it since I was a little kid in Columbus, Mississippi, and Ric Flair would come through the <laughs> curtains, and I'd snap a Polaroid, and he'd throw his arms out, and I'd fall back. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm kind of part of this, right? right? But I was always on the periphery of it, and still am, and I, I love being there, okay? So, but here's what happened. This whole thing, so you come to Toy Fair in February, and then we launch probably about August, the product hits the shelf. The demand was shocking off the bat. And yeah. let me tell you the way a toy, any toy brand works, okay? There's a few gatekeepers, right? Gatekeeper number one is the factory, okay? The factory has to allocate enough space to any brand. And when they're sitting there and they're like, we've got Turtles, we've got Marvel, we've got DC, we've got AEW. And they're like, AEW, what does that stand for? And you're <laughs> like, that's going to be the biggest thing ever, right? So that's part one. Part two is convincing retail to buy enough. And essentially, you know, they're like, look, here's the, here's the ladder plan. You have to sell 1,700 units this week and 2,400 next week and 3,100 next week. And then you put it in shelf and it sells 20,000 units in the first week. And it's just gone. It's mm -hmm. gone. Mm -hmm. So it takes a while to find your feet under you. Every single one of these toy brands is a startup from a toy perspective. Even if you're in a old school toy company like ours, where we know exactly what to do, it still takes time to convince all the gatekeepers. Now, today, all the gatekeepers are entirely convinced. So it's exciting where we're going with You know, it's interesting to me, because once again, talking about, about uh, the toy fair, and we 
being AEW, we had a really big kind of display in the back of the convention center. And I mean, I was there, Kenny was there, Cody, Hangman, the Bucks. I remember Luchasaurus, Jungle Boy. We had kind of our, our A crew was there. And then I was able to get it because it was so funny, like typical like WWE bullshit. Like they wouldn't let us up there to see their display. And so one of the guys let me in and then I was filming something, just filming like some of the stuff. He goes, you can't film. I go, why? Because I'll get in trouble if they know you're up here. I'm like, I've made these guys. I, there's 200 Chris Jericho WWE action figures and I can't. 190 of them. There you go. And we'll talk about that. And I can't come look at your display, but their display was in the back of the room in a corner. They had nobody there. None of the talent was there. And I thought, this is pretty lame in comparison to what AEW has, which really surprised me, especially at the Toy Fair in New York City. Why do you think that was? Well, I think there's a few things. I think, number one, when you are a newer organization, yeah. there's no links to where you will go to put yourself on the map. And right. so the other thing is you're, no, you're not jaded. You're not necessarily, even if you've been in the business for decades, the world is your oyster. And frankly speaking, the way AEW was put together, it was put together like a community. It was put together like a whole positive culture. This whole feel came from the very beginning. So I think that, I think that you know, over time, what happens is you come to realize that you know, these action figures, they have some value in terms of you don't want the leak to get out. You don't want the, the wrong uh, photo to get out at the wrong time. Right. But, but I think it's two things. One, culture. You guys are setting an amazing culture. And two, probably there's some pragmatic stuff going on where they don't, they, there's timing about where they want something to be launched. That's my guess. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned, because what I was going to say initially was there was like there was a Jericho with uh, the hat and the jacket, and there was a Jericho with the inner circle. And then you guys made almost a playset that came in a bottle of bubbly. Yes. which was the table and the little uh, catering setup with the little, you know, cheese and ham. Then there's a little bucket with the bubbly in it. But the funny thing is that one was really hard to find. And I, I actually, just to finish up, the only reason I got one is I did a signing, I think, for Ringside Collectibles where they had like 300 of them. And I said, can I have one of these? <laughs> and then Brody Jr. couldn't get one, so I gave him mine. Then I went to order another one, and I, it's like a five month backlog. So these things are really selling to the point where, like you mentioned, there was almost an over interest in it to where I think a lot of the, the retailers were kind of caught flat footed. I think everybody was. I mean, I think, I think everyone was caught flat footed. And when you have an action figure brand, it's not like printing cards where you can just go and turn on the machine and print them. Right. With action figures, you've got to tool it up. You've got to You've got to get all the, you got to get everything approved. You got, and it's, it's a six month to nine month process from the creation to the shipping to getting it on shelf. So, right. yeah, I mean, the good news is AEW is one of the most, I would say, uh, high velocity, high rate of sale, uh, linear productivity is what I say in retail items on all of retail right now. And it's mm. very exciting to see. And, and I think that just the demand you, when you are a merchant, you always want to be just under the demand curve with your supply. You never want to overship. If you overship, you're dead. You know, if you overship, right. if you overship your your in in your other world when you're creating uh, records and you're creating music, if you overship 
and the retailers are stuck with 20,000 albums and they're having to deep discount them, it sends the wrong signal. So it's always good to be a little bit under the demand curve, but uh, we didn't want to be this far under the demand curve, that's for sure. So has it caught up yet? Because I know, of course, too, the pandemic happens, which caused a lot of issues. But I have a feeling even if there was no pandemic, that all of the Walmarts, because people would go in and say, I went to, 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 to try and find something at Walmart and there was, you know, one belt left. Nothing was left. Right. Right. It's always the one belt left. By the way. <laughs> Every Walmart you go into, it's going to be a belt. And, and I don't even know. It's like some guy goes in the back and is like, let's put the belt out. You know, yeah, <laughs> so they can at have least it we out. got that. Yeah, at least we got that. <laughs> um, you know, it's a different world now. So a couple things happen to even make things more complicated. Number one, people who are not even into AEW or wrestling at all uh, recognize that there's secondary market value. And so they decide they're going to pull it off the shelf they're gonna sell it on eBay and they're gonna make a margin on it. Okay, that's that's part one. Number two is that it's a situation where I think that retail itself, especially early on, there were some challenges even getting product on the shelf with COVID being sort of in its earlier phase. Right. Um, and it affected all brands. And then number three, and I would say this may even be the most impactful, apps. So now people have apps that will tell them when their local store, the moment. Oh, wow. So the moment it gets placed, it's gone. And especially in a world where you have these third parties that are specifically looking to make margin on eBay, there's no way you can't make enough if there's a perception that there's a demand that outstrips supply. So Mm. if we were not in the year 2020, if we were in the year 2005, you'd see more product at retail for sure because information wasn't as clean. Right, right, right. But today with information being as clean and people knowing they can make five bucks on a figure, why not? You know, it's an easy way to to make 30 bucks by buying an assortment and selling it. I mean, listen, if I were a 18-year-old kid and I was hustling and paying for school like I did back in the day, I'd be the guy with the app. I'll tell you that right now. I'd be the mm-hmm. guy with the app. So I get it. I get it. It's frustrating, but uh, but I do get it. Let's talk about, you mentioned that, you know, you, if there was 200 Jericho figures in WWE, you made 190 of them. You spent a lot of time working with the WWE, and that was that with, what was the company called, Jax, or what was it called? Yeah, Jax, Jax, right. Yeah, so, so yeah. T- so talk about that. So in w- what year are we dealing with here, and, and how many years did you work with the WWE, and how did you develop the figures and all that sort of stuff? So in 2002, um, I was at Mattel. And I got recruited to come to Jack's to head up their boys action group. I was in my in my 20s, in my late 20s. Right. And it was just too good to pass up because WWE was part of that. And the Attitude Era had just ended. And these toy sales had cratered, okay? Because during the Attitude Era, you could put a salami sandwich with uh, Stone Cold Space <laughs> on it. And it would right. sell, right? You could literally stamp a, a Y2J or um, a rock, or and it was going to be fine. So the thought process was toys were toys, right? There was the strategy and the plans really evolved. So when I got to Jack's, what my mindset was is let's, let's not make toys. Let's make collectibles. And the first thing that I did was I said, you know what? There is no exploration of the entire historical roster, the guys that I would go see when I was right. there. There was none. So I actually had the opportunity to sit down with, with Vince McMahon, which was very interesting, especially for a 20-something-year-old kid, right. and try to convince him that it was okay for me to go make Ultimate Warrior and some other guys like that. And I So how did that conversation go? It was swift, and it was positive, because he recognized that it was good for business. 
and I had a really good plan. So I was able to communicate to him the following things. Number one, that if we don't do it, someone else is going to do it. Uh, number two, that we can structure deals, individual deals with talent, where if there ever is a WWE alumni program, mm. that we would lose all the rights immediately to the alumni program and we would pay the talent 100% of all minimum guarantees owed so they get double paid. So it was that that was really a game breaker because you know and it was good that we actually had that kind of vision because we would win either way. As long as we had the talent we could make them under the, that badge, we would win. So we don't, I didn't really care if we had to pay an MG out twice. That was totally acceptable. And then finally, really we started in that first assortment. We had Bret Hart and the Ultimate Warrior and it just blew people's minds because it had been quite some time since you'd seen those talents, especially with Warrior, who was in an active lawsuit at the time. Right. So that so by the so 2003 comes around, classic superstars hits. I start using my wave rollout mentality that I'm utilizing with AEW today, and it completely changed the game. I mean, we went from just put it this way: we increased our retail sales by 600 percent over five years, wow. and WWE became the number one action figure over every other brand without any change in pay-per-view rates, without any increase in TV revenue, without any increase in, in, in butts and seats. And it was all strategy. It was all the, because we were able to set up a deal that would allow us to leverage the strength of the historical roster. It was very important. It's almost like that was the early days of the, uh, or maybe the first example of the WWE Legends deal that they have today. The very first. Hmm. It was all structured based on, and look, I. I'm not, I've been in the background. I don't take a lot of credit, but I will take credit for that. And <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned the wave rollout mentality. Explain what that is. The way action figures used to work is they would say, we need to make 300,000 units of this assortment. And the assortment might be, it might take six months for that assortment to sell through retail. Okay. And six months is way too long for anything to be sitting on shelf. Right. And so when I came and I said, let's not manage this by unit volume. Let's manage this like a collectible. Let's manage it by time. So no matter what happens, if we get 700 orders or we get 700,000 orders, we're only shipping this wave for this amount of time. So January 1st through February 1st, and then we cut it off and we move to the next wave. And that was a big game changer because what that meant was no matter what the demand was at retail, the demand never fully hit I'm sorry. Yeah, the demand never fully hits supply. Right. Right. And when that happens, the demand continues, just goes up and up and up. And it just, uh, again, similar strategy with AEW. And what we're learning is every single wave, what we're learning is big can be even bigger. And uh, what I will say, and I've said this over and over again throughout my entire career, is that you can maximize a wave early on. But if you miss it, you don't get to wave two or wave 20 or wave 50. It's better to be a little light and to learn your consumer and to learn where they're at and then to move forward and, and offer them an amazing line for 10 years versus two months. Let's talk about how, how the, the figures are designed now in comparison to 2002 or three or four, because that's the thing with WWE. And that's one of the reasons why I always had different facial hair, different costumes, different ring gear, because I realized early on that they would make, uh, or you guys would make an action figure for every look that I had. You know, and some sometimes it kind of looks like you, and sometimes it doesn't, and sometimes it looks nothing like you, but at least the thing was coming out. <laughs> right, and, and by the way, that's the right attitude. 
Uh, that's yeah. exactly right. Attitude. And I think fans have the same perspective. They recognize not every movie you make is going to uh, win an Oscar. And that's, mm. that's just giving people the opportunity to be humans. I mean, not every sculptor is going to nail it. And by the way, there are facial expressions that if you make, they don't look anything like you. But if you make other facial expressions, they're the quintessential you, right? right. And so that's, that's the truth with action figures too. I'm telling you, you'll see some figures where a mouth is wide open and you're like, oh my God, that's awful. Then you show the picture next to it and you're like, oh my, that's great. So yeah. the changes in terms of what's happened is in 2003, that's approximately the time that we started using real scan technology where we would literally sit you guys in a chair We'd be, bring a giant machine in the room, and this yeah. giant machine would circle you. And probably, I don't even know what kind of terrible things it was juicing into your body. <laughs> like, I, <laughs> like, I don't even know. I, I, honestly, I don't know what I've contributed to in this world. But I will say this. Today, so, so back in the day, giant machine would come in, and then, then the cleanup would be forever. It would take, a, it would take a, an illustrator and a designer forever to clean up all these pixelated weirdness that you would see. Mm. And before that, slightly before we introduced RealScan, it was just all hand sculpt. Uh, today, it is fascinating. It's, uh, you can bring in a hand scanner, and you can swoop that hand scanner around. And much like if you go to a Smile Direct Club or something and get your teeth scanned for right. painters, they can take like 6,000 photos of your face in seconds without any radioactivity. Um, and then finally, the other thing that happens is that the deco, so the deco that you place on someone's face now, it used to be all hand painted in China. So every stroke was literally someone's hand. Today, there's some hand painting and there's also something called direct inkjet printing where literally they'll line those faces up and they will put a paint mask on it hmm. and like it's done. It's done. It's amazing. And they'll do, but you can get way more detailed. So the sculpting is better. The deco is better unless you have a snafu and then you end up with the eyes on the top of your head. And by the <laughs> way, that's like a one in a thousand thing. So when you see it in your in your Twitter feed, please give us a break because the other <laughs> nine are not I think I sent you a couple of those, didn't I? Like, what the hell is this? Yeah. And every time I'm like, oh man, I love social media and I hate social media. Yeah. And then and then finally the third thing is scaling. Scaling on the figures that we would do back in the day would suck. Andre the Giant would be like slightly taller than like Tony Schiavone. <laughs> right, right, right. But I think today we're, you know, we've done a much better job with that, with the occasional snafu, I would say. Like Dustin Rhodes is eight foot seven and he needs to be about <laughs> four. So what finally made you go from working with WWE to, to coming to work for AEW? Well, so um, what happened was the license for WWE went to Mattel in 2010. So we drove it. We did an amazing job. And it was time for them to move on. So when the contract is up, then they have like a bidding war, like it would be for television or something to see which company gets it. That's exactly right. That's 100% correct. And, um, you know, it was, uh, it was it, it, at the, I think 15 years was a good run. And uh, that's, that's how long that Jackson mm -hmm. had the license. So about uh, three years later, I had the opportunity to start a, to, to be a part of a partner in a startup. And uh, three of us started in 2012, like 13. And by 2016, we had convinced Pokemon to grant us the global rights to the Pokemon brand to manufacture it globally. And this was right before Pokemon Go hit. Wow. And what company, what company did you have? What was it called? Wicked Cool Toys. Wicked Cool Toys. Wow. So then you got the Pokemon license. It was unbelievable. And they invested in our company. 
So wow. they invested in us and granted us global rights. It was a dream. Um, you know, look, good deeds in life come back to you. If you are a good spirited, good intentioned, earnest individual, I can tell you it may not come back on a Tuesday if you do a good deed on a Monday, but your cumulative deeds do come back to you in a positive way over time. And in this particular case, my particular love for that brand, much like my love for wrestling, was a huge benefit in terms of us going into the room and pitching for Pokemon. And my partners are amazingly supportive. So we really focused on gaming and um, we focused on social media stuff before other people. And Jazzwares, the acquiring company for Wicked Cool Toys, had done much of the same. Fortnite, Roblox, and some of the biggest brands in the gaming space. So today, so going back to AEW specifically, so after we got Pokemon, we were really positioned well to win. We were really positioned well. So went from a point of weakness to a point of extreme strength. Go hit, we were killing it. And I saw something in the trades about a, you know, about a billionaire who was interested in potentially starting a new wrestling organization and that there were interest potentially from someone like Chris Jericho, formerly known as Corazon de Leon. <laughs> and I was like, dude, I've seen this play out before. I've seen this before. And, and let me just say one thing about aging, about getting older. When you get older, you tend to see patterns a lot easier than when you're younger. So I remember 1997, 96, 95, when Ted Turner had a cast of characters and created an amazing uh, alternative to WWF at the time. And I thought, you know what? This is going to come down to three things. This is going to come down to TV, like where are they going to be on? It's going to come down to the roster. And it's going to come down to the creative because I knew that they had the money. I knew that unlike a lot of other organizations, that the funding was there, which is also an enormous thing that's needed in yeah. wrestling if you're going to compete. Right. So I had the opportunity to, to um, connect with Chris Harrington and Nick Sobek and Dana and an amazing team, Mark Kaplan, an amazing team of people. Talked a lot about Tony Khan, talked a lot about what the plan was. And based on your joining and based on Cody and based on the Bucks and Kenny, I was like, you know what? We're in. I don't even know what this content is going to look like, but we're in. And then the TV deal came in and it was, uh, and then the content's outstanding. So what can you do? Everything seems to be lining up. And then COVID hit you and you've done an exceptional job. Uh, despite it. So uh, thank you for that. So and thank you, man. And, and that's, it's funny too, because the three things I always said to start a wrestling company was the, the financial backing, the television and, and the talent. And you're right, throwing in the creative as well. But when you're coming up with the first, you know, the first collection, what do you guys call it? Is it the first collection? The first yes, series, the first series. So how do you decide? Cause there, like you said, it was Jericho, Cody, Kenny, the bucks. And I think Brandy, right? Yeah. So, so what made you choose those certain talents out of the gate? Well, so a few things. And, and this has always been my theory when it comes to launching a brand and specifically a wrestling brand. The objective long term is to dive way deep into the roster, right? And I'll explain how we're doing that and what our plans are to do that. But when you kick something off, you want to kick it off with probably more main event talent than you're traditionally going to be doing mm. because you're trying to make a statement. You're trying to make a statement. It's almost like the first episode of a TV show needs to be really exceptionally good. Right. Because if you don't hook them in early, you're never going to hook them in. That's the reason why Warrior and Hart were in the first 
wave of classic superstars and not, mm. not other guys that we celebrated later. So yeah, you start off and you're probably 60 to 70% main event talent. And, you know, the thing is that entire roster for wave one was pretty exceptional. Series one was exceptional. And um, the objective as you go down the path is to be about a third uh, to 40% main event talent, about 50% mid card, and then have, you know, 10, 15% of the up and coming, not necessarily on TV every week roster. And that's the way you can keep something going over and over again. Yeah. It's probably much the way you guys manage programming, to be honest. I mean, there's, there's yeah. a lot of similarities. Well, it reminds me of, of I was a big Star Wars collector. Um, I mean, I remember my mom buying me the first Luke Skywalker and Chewbacca, like in 1977. Like, what the hell are these things? Because before that, it was G.I. Joe's and, you know, the, the actual six inch, eight inch figures. And here they are, two, three inches or four inches, whatever it was. But then, they, then as the movies continued, then you it wouldn't just be Chewbacca and Han Solo and Luke. Then you'd be getting you know IG eighty eight and Bosk and you know uh, you know all these other kind of more obscure type performers, right? And I think that's because people then become completists. Like I have to have my Weequay doll and my Jabba playset now, right? That's that's one hundred percent the case. Yes, uh, you have to give a consumer and a brand. And by the way, frankly speaking, there's no brand like wrestling as much as Star Wars. Maybe the Marvel Universe, but not really, because in the Marvel Universe, you still need to have like a third of everything on shelf be Spider-Man. Right. In Star Wars, you can really go deep. I mean, you can say there's 300 characters and I'm going to celebrate all of them. In wrestling, you can do much the same. I mean, essentially... You've got your Han Solo, but it's also very important to have everyone else around Han Solo. Uh, and so you can't sell, you know, you can't sell a Jedi only and have the play pattern represented. It would seem too like there's certain people that just like, like for example, like like Luther, just would seem like just perfect for an action figure because it just looks like a cartoon character to begin with. You know, there's certain ones like when you mentioned kind of the 10, 15 percent of the lower ones, you could probably pick and choose some of the ones that would be more fun to make rather than just faces and bodies. Right. Absolutely. No question about it. And and, you know, a great lesson from that is if you look at what we were doing in the in the mid 2000s with like John Cena versus like a Rey Mysterio. Mm-hmm. where Rey Mysterio would ebb and flow in terms of whether he was in the main event uh, spot. Right, now, right. he was often there. Don't get me wrong. I mean, he's like one of the legends of all time. Of course. But John Cena was always there. Um, there was not a you – couldn't, you couldn't really find a moment where he wasn't. Right. But Mysterio product would constantly outperform everything. Um, it was the mask. It mm. was the face paint on Sting. It was – and you're exactly – I mean, you're 100% right that – these things, and you see guys out there today uh, that aren't really on any roster at all, and they're using face paint, and I can look at them and I can say, they have 15,000 social media followers, and they'll outsell this other dude 10 to yeah, 1. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you're, you're 100% right when it comes to that. When you had the first wave, it was, there was, like we mentioned earlier, there's three Jericho uh, designs, shall we say. What was the reason for that? Well, I mean, we we have a proclivity towards you, Chris. What can I say? <laughs> I, <laughs> you You're know. obsessed. You couldn't get the Corazon de Leon card, so you made three action figures. By the way, you know what needs to happen? The Corazon de Leon 
Legends figure. <laughs> hey, we could probably do it. That's, I mean, please put that on the checklist of, could, of possible things. That's right behind the uh, Mimosa Mayhem playset. Oh, that's, that's, that has <laughs> to happen. That has to happen. Uh, you know, um, talking about, you know, you for a moment, everyone in life, everyone, no matter what they do, has sort of an external voice and an internal voice. You go to work, your boss says something to you, uh, you go, yes, inside you're going like, you know, yeah, you're right. saying whatever it is that you're thinking in your mind. <laughs> yeah. When you have the occupation that you have and when you manage it exceptionally well, right. you have the opportunity to match that inner voice and that external voice very closely and explore a bunch of characters within your own psyche, right? So right. you've had many, and I don't know if anyone's ever done it better than you. You've had so many iterations of yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. All gotcha. of which are organic and true. So you just make it easy on us, Chris. That's the key. You make it easy on us because you have so many personas that fit you organically. And you make it easy because you understand the game. Um, and therefore, it's easy to celebrate you with a lot of action figures. I guess taking me, taking me out of the equation, the fact that I'm here talking to you, um, is it the fact that you kind of, once again, like you said, you want to come out of the gate where people that are, uh, that are completists and collectors, okay, well, there's three Jerichos. We got to get them all. We got to find the, the, the bubbly bottle. It, it, do you see that with, when you're talking about kind of the first series of this line that there's going to be people that are going to, no matter what, buy them all? Yeah. And I think also remember, and when I talked about gatekeepers early, uh, consumers are the third gatekeeper. It's factories and retail buyers. Gotcha, right, right, right. So when I go pitch a line, I've got to, I've got to sink my teeth into something they're going to relate to. I have to say, when I made the WWE figures, we sold a godzillion Chris Jericho figures. Guess what? He's with AEW. That's gotcha. how big this is going to be. Gotcha. And I go to retail, and I have much the same statement. And they're like, oh, yeah, I remember how many Jericho figures we sold in 2007. And again, this is about seeing patterns and being a little bit older. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. that is nothing that would have been on my mind when I was in my 20s. I mean, you just know who you need to sell to. And then once you have been successful and you get to the fan and you get to the consumer, um, as long as you haven't blown it, you can truly explore the broader roster later on. So then you're talking now about uh, the second series, shall we say. And I just looked it up. That was MJF, Moxley, Hangman, Dustin. Penta and Phoenix, correct? Yes, that is correct. So once again, same concept where you want a couple of the main event guys and then like the mask guys are kind of a little bit more interesting. Yeah, I think I think you got it. I think you under you, you see the matrix. You're in the matrix of uh, action figure uh, development. Um, <laughs> it's exactly right. You know, you, you've got some main eventers. You've got some very interesting mid-card guys and you've got some up-and-coming guys. And, and the way AEW has managed the mid card and up and coming talent um, should be studied because you, what you've done is you haven't, you haven't buried them or made fun of them uh, or glorified yourselves in the process. It's been a really good thing to see. And from, as a consumer and a fan, a collector um, it's made it really easy to be a manufacturer. Um, so yeah, that wave two had talent in, in the middle of the card that was supported and driven and celebrated by AEW, and therefore we get to wave three and beyond. 
Is this a decision that you and, and your company makes, or is there any uh, input from AEW as in we want to have this guy as a, as a figure or this girl as a figure? Or are you kind of just going through the roster and saying we want to choose these ones? It's a, it's a joint process between AEW and Jazzwares to decide um, – uh, you know, who is in, in the assortment. And then we have to use our own, you know, retail knowledge um, and deep understanding of the brand to communicate why it is that we're doing certain things that we're doing. So for instance, one of the things that we came up with going into fall was to have Unrivaled, which is the action figure property that you, that you know and has right. had four right. ways yep. today, but also have Unmatched which is interesting, and I'll explain why we're doing that. So retail, no matter how productive you are, is it, it, it's not Star Wars, okay? It's not Star Wars where they're going to give four or five feet of space and it's been on shelf since 1970. Right, right, right. So you're carving your way into that space where you've got Transformers and G.I. Joe and all this stuff that's been out there forever. And by the way, well done because you're in there. And the opportunity here is we've had a lot of success with this one facing, and now we want to peck away and have a second facing. What this second facing does for us is it allows us to have new waves at retail every single month. And when you're able to do that between unmatched and unrivaled, where they're both pacing along at two months, but they're kind of like step ladder on each other. So one is April, the next is May, the next is June, and we're switching back and forth between new waves of unrivaled and unmatched. It allows us to drive super deep into the roster. And so when we're able to communicate with AEW and negotiate over the plans and who's in, we have a much deeper roster that we can pull from because there's more slots available. And that's and that's really the plan. I was going to ask you that, like when you're talking about the shelf space alone, because that's hard to do. Um, and you're mentioning when you have Transformers in the Marvel Universe and, and G.I. Joe, etc. Are you now competing for space with WWE as well? I mean, I would listen, it's all a big dog fight. That's mm. the truth. But I don't see WWE necessarily as the competitor. I see WWE, in fact, in fact, when wrestling is at its greatest, it's when you have two really strong right. um, entities or companies. Or entities. Yeah. That's when you've seen the most sales for WWE, that's when you've seen the most sales for all of wrestling. Um, it may be more comfortable when there's one big organization. But when there's two big organizations, there's more business. And at mm. the end of the day, as much as I love collectibles on a personal level, and as much as I love making toys on a professional level, I am a for-profit guy. I'm a transactional guy. And I'm, I might be kind, and I might be nice, but I'm a capitalist. And so at the end of the day, the objective is not to do any harm to WWE. The objective is to have two exceptionally strong organizations that are pecking away at all the other space because it's such a good time for wrestling in general. We need wrestling to be strong, not just one right, brand. Right. So when you, uh, and I'm looking once again at, at number three now, and that was, uh, it looked like there's another edition of the Bucks, Darby Allen, Riho, uh, Orange Cassidy, and it looks like Pack. Yeah. So my question is, um, obviously for someone like Darby and, and, and Riho and, and Orange Cassidy, it's probably their first ever action figures. Yeah. Um, so does that make those more valuable, more sought, sought after? You know, it's so funny that you say that because in the card business, uh, my hobby, Yeah. <laughs> you know, rookie means a lot. And so it's the first issuance. It means a lot. 
In the figure business, it doesn't mean nearly as much, but I will tell you that it means a lot to us because we know how much it means to the talent. So when, yeah. and, and to the end consumer, there's a lot of excitement because they've never been able to celebrate or have a figure fed or display uh, a character that means a lot to them. And, you know, and I, you know, I think about each uh, talent on the roster and I look at Orange Cassidy and while Orange Cassidy has come on very strong and, you know, you guys had an amazing interplay and, and that was helpful. He's also not a guy who's 23 years old. So he's clearly had a career. Right. Um, so I know how much this means to him. So while we may never have a communication, we may rarely, but I'm not sure he talks to anybody. I mean, he seems like a guy <laughs> that may have two or three words a week. Um, our objective is to make sure that if it's the first figure, we're, you know, honoring the talent. And then occasionally we'll have, you know, we'll, we'll hit uh, Oscar winning performance and other times we'll do okay. But you know, the objective is always to do especially good in those situations. So when you're putting out, you know, series one, series two, series three, if there's people who are still looking for the Jericho, you know, bubbly set or the first Jericho, do you still manufacture those as well? Or does it kind of like when series three comes in, then you leave series two behind and, and series one behind exponentially, et cetera, et cetera? Generally speaking, um, you leave the older series behind. Gotcha. Um, because you're also in some ways establishing trust with your end consumer. And sometimes they're paying a premium on eBay to get it. Um, in this particular case with series one, what I communicated is we are going to go back and print some more. We're going to make some more because I thought we did a very poor job on skin tone. And so when we, when we make the additional figures, we're going to call them uh, series one version two. Mm. To make it very clear on packaging, for those of you who have Series 1, it's not going to do anything to damage the value of what you have or your right. hard-earned money. You might be a first responder who's paid you know, $75 for an action figure. And by the way, some of your figures from Series 1, the chase, are like $1,000. Really? <laughs> really. From this, from, 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 from AEW? Yeah, wow. from AEW. So mm. the point is... It's, a, it's an interesting game that you're playing. You're walking a real tightrope because you want to make sure that you offer more. In the meantime, you don't want to put off people. So what I've always found is in the book business, they do a second printing. So why not do that in the right. figure business? So make it sure that people know this is the second printing and your first printing is safe. So we're, and for number, uh, Series 4, it's another Kenny, another Cody, Sammy Guevara, Matt Hardy, Santana, and Ortiz, which is great for all those guys. But my question is, so now you've done two Candies, two Cody's, two Bucks, but still you haven't revisited Jericho again. For example, taking me out of the equation, why has those other guys had, you know, why haven't I been in another series, Jeremy, huh? <laughs> yeah, that that's a strategic error. That's clearly, honestly, I will say, of uh, the three biggest mistakes I made this year, all three were not including you again in the series earlier. So we're going to have really? to make sure that we take it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yes. Yes, that is correct, Chris. That's 100%. No. Uh, <laughs> you know, I. it's hard to say. I, I, uh, I will say that there's just no doubt that, you know, main event talent uh, is overrepresented and... Um, there's a reason for that. And, and you are clearly in many ways on the Rushmore of wrestling, um, which you've earned over time. I mean, <laughs> no, but I, I wasn't, I was just asking out of curiosity. So now you're giving these guys different, uh, 
different outfits, different costumes, just to create. Once again, you're looking for these these main event people. So now let's do another Kenny, but a, a different look for him, for example. Yeah, and for Kenny, for instance, you know, while this may be his second AEW figure, he really hasn't had a lot of figures right. over the years. So, and he is a, such a remarkable talent. Uh, and one of those people that, you know, and uh, while I don't know him personally, I can, I, I kind of feel like I understand that personality type. He doesn't seem to be the type that screams for attention. He seems mm-hmm. to be the type that just gets it because he's just that good. Right. And right, right. it's so good that we have the opportunity to, you know, make multiple figures of him in AEW. It's a, it's a thrill, but th- these are his, <laughs> these are some of his very first figures really in the scheme of things. If not his first overall, for sure. So when uh, so, so now that you know we mentioned kind of when when these figures first came out combination of the pandemic and just not quite understanding the demand have we caught up to that now with an AW like if I went to Walmart today would I find some of these on the shelves or would still would it still be just the uh, one belt hanging there I mean I think I think the guy with the belt is always in the ready depending on the store in the country. Uh, <laughs> But but the but the reality is that we have increased the supply every single wave, and we're still trying to calibrate what that perfect mode is. And I, I think that once we get to fall and we have two concurrent waves at retail, I think that's when the apps and the stock people and uh, anybody else that may be involved in the whole chain that see the opportunity to make a profit are, are taken out of the equation. And by the way, I, what I I don't I'm not inferring necessarily that that there's insider stuff, but often you know you could hey buddy you know I'm gonna call my best friend and make sure that they know that I'm putting out stuff tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. I mean like when you have a hot item or a hot brand, the key here is not overreacting. If we overreact and we put out two and a half times the next wave that we did the prior wave, and we end up with stock at, at on shelf and it's so remarkably available. It would be bad. And so it's just, it's just, it's honestly, it's tweaking and tweaking and tweaking until we find the right thing. Is Walmart kind of the highest seller or is it kind of more, uh, you know, like a ringside collectible that's more kind of focusing on, on that? Or where do you see the majority of the sales coming from? Ringside collectibles has been unbelievable. So I've, I, interestingly enough, the kid, Jonathan, that started ringside collectibles, did it when he was 13 years old in the 90s where he was literally doing exactly what I'm communicating. He started out like as an eBay seller and then uh, he was just ahead of it. And he took advantage of the attitude era and did really well. And today ringside collectibles is one of the largest retail outlets. Walmart is a whole different thing. Walmart's one of the largest companies in the world. And you know, what they've identified now is that they've identified how productive this brand is and it means a lot to them. And so it's exciting to see one of the biggest companies in the world recognize that. So they're fully on board with us. In fact, they're asking for more opportunities to work with AEW, which we will be doing in, across the board. So the long and short of it is we celebrate the very specific uh, niche retailers like Ringside that have become a monster in the category. And we celebrate the biggest uh, companies in the world, but we're also adding Target in uh, this spring, we're also adding GameStop later in wow. the year. You know, I know you've been trading the GameStop stock this week. I mean, who didn't? <laughs> <laughs> so they seem to be well positioned to buy some. Yeah, more they're back now, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, so how often do you put out a series every few months? 
Well, so in the beginning, it was every two to three months. And now this spring, it's every two months. And now when we get into fall, it between unmatched and unrivaled, it'll be every single month, there should be new product at retail. But that doesn't mean that the prior wave goes away, because we're going to have two waves concurrently right. selling at all times. Do you have like, is it kind of a secret who who's kind of on the list coming up? Or is it something that you've that you let people know? Like, like how, how, how does that kind of work? Well, well, we need to get more ahead of it. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. And that's been a big lesson in the era of social media where, you know, we'd like to keep a secret, but the truth is there's no secrets to be had. Um, one of the bigger issues, and this affects every single action figure property, is that when you're managing a factory, for instance, okay, and you have collectors who are exceptionally excited, you also have people that, have, that, that are looking to create clout. And part of creating cloud is having more people that view their stuff online. So somehow, but they know a friend that knows a friend that knows a friend that has a factory connection. They establish something. There's cryptocurrency in all ways that you can, that you can do things. Right. And there are $20 cameras that are very discreet. So the accessibility to all of this is so high to answer your question. We're going to have to get ahead of and announce everything earlier than we've ever done before. So I think, you know, between AEW and Jazzwares, very shortly after conceiving of what a a wave will be and prior to having anything on paper, we'll probably be announcing who's in the wave. Uh, And then as soon as we have any visuals, we'll probably be showing that as well. What it does is, I mean, we're in the long game together. We're going to be doing this for 10 years, 20 years. So we might as well just kind of show stuff early. It won't harm the business. In fact, it will only help uh, having leaks go away. But that's been the big lesson. You know, it's so exciting too. And I'm not saying this from, from a, you know, uh, egotistical standpoint or whatever, but after the first series, I wasn't really keeping track of who was coming out and who wasn't, but looking at all these ones that we've been talking about today, I mean, it's really exciting to to see all the new the new talent having these figures. And I mean, I don't want you to give away any secrets, but is, who would you like to see have a, a figure over the next two, three, four, five, six, eight months, whatever it may be. Is there a couple of characters that you think are going to stick? Yeah, for sure. I mean, look, one thing about being, uh, one thing about being 47 is that you start to understand the totality of one's career <laughs> yeah. and what people had to go through. So I look at someone like Eddie Kingston and mm. I say, this is a guy that may or may not have had a real bright light shining on him, but he's got it. And he made so much positivity with it and he was so good with it that it'll be a, a joy to make a figure for for him mm. you see people like anna jay who clearly is coming into her own in such a rapid pace and you guys are nurturing that and for, you don't it could go either way early on if you don't nurture it appropriately right and so like you can see this like we're all in on it like we like fans we know we can see it right and so, yeah, as a manufacturer, it's really exciting to have the opportunity to make something for her. But, it, like, honestly, I, I can't think of people on the roster that doesn't fall necessarily into that category. Because if you look at classic superstars or you look at what we have to do with Ruthless Aggression or Adrenaline or any of the lines that I've ever been a part of, it's always been about um, supporting the totality of the roster. J.R., I can't wait to make something for JR. Yeah. Tony Shivani, I can't wait to make something for right. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, we're we're gonna be going deep and we're gonna be making sure that, you know, it's not just gonna be 
35 Cody's around a ring with 17 Jericho's in the middle of the ring. Uh, but there will be uh, more Jericho's and Cody's than others. Uh, and that's just the way it is because we want to maintain a very high rate of sale. Which which is great, too. Like you said, if that's kind of kind of be the tent pole, it's cool. But like I said, I loved the Weequay figures and the you know the, the all those type of ones. So it would be cool to, to have some of those more uh, rare let's say rare, but some of the, the, the lower level guys that are still featured quite often. I think that's going to be great. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's super fun. I mean, I, I can think all the way back to the LJN days. Um, and by the way, the J and LJN was Jack Friedman, who was the CEO of Jack's. So, oh. <laughs> so back in the LJN days, when I used to play and be a kid that was 10 years old on the floor with all my LJN figures, look, to me, this is sacred. It's sacred stuff. I yeah. realize what's going on. You've got kids that are, utilizing their imagination and becoming their heroes. You've got adults who are living out aspirational things through other people and who really have spent a life celebrating and enjoying wrestling, the art of wrestling. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so we, 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 that's how seriously we take it. Last few questions for you, Jeremy. Um, you've been doing this for so long. It's a twofold question. What is your favorite Jericho figure that you've ever been involved with if one pops in your head and what's your favorite figure period and if if there's a few or 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 whatever like some of the standouts for you over your career well you know I'm thinking back in terms of the in terms of the Jericho figures we've done over the years I I really liked some of the Y2J stuff and I believe we did some things in classic superstars that was towards the very end of classic superstars that was celebrating you um I, I will say that the one figure that I wish we had made of you was the the list figure, but that oh, was already yeah. at Mattel at right. the time, so I never got to fully celebrate you there. Um, I say I think my favorite action figure of all time um, that we've ever made, um, or I should say, in any iteration, was the uh, Ric Flair. There's a Ric Flair red robe figure that we made in Classic Superstars that just captures Ric Flair for everything that the man is. He is styling and profiling. He's got this red robe that's just in your face. You're not even sure what's going on under there. Uh, (laughs) And uh, it's just, it's Ric Flair. And then we did a one of 25 employee edition that we sent out that has like um, rhinestones in it. I mean, (laughs) and by the way, if you can find that one, it's like $10,000 on the secondary market. But yeah, some of those figures, and then, frankly speaking, in the latest assortment, the Santana figure is really one of my favorite figures uh, that we've that we've ever made. I, I really, really love it, and I love the fact that we're celebrating his heritage. And you know, the man clearly, and and he, you know, both guys, they put they put it out there. They're proud, and we just wanted to be celebrating their pride alongside them. I, I love uh, that that the, the uh, Ortiz has braided hair and Afro hair. You can replace the head. And Santana has normal face and then the patch face, <laughs> which was a very short period of time. Ortiz and Santana, I would say are, you know, in terms of my favorites, they're both like, those two figures are amazing. Like, I love the fact that the flag is represented. It just, it's just great stuff. My, I was going to say, my, my, uh, there's a lot of Jericho figures as I said, and, and they would never send them to me, so I'd have to see them at fan, you know, signings or whatever. But the first two that I ever had when I was still at WCW, 
The first one was uh, it was a package of me and Dean Malenko, and on our fists it had a magnet on it so that our fists would connect and you could like flip it around. And my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, she bought it for me. It was a Dean Malenko Chris Jericho package, and when she bought it at Target, the receipt said Sting and Hulk Hogan on it. <laughs> so I think they were making all the royalties off that. <laughs> oh my gosh! And can I tell you, I, I I will tell you why that happens. That and and by the way, I've never done that, never. Right. But those types of things happen when a manufacturer, and I'm not saying this is the case, but it could be, is trying to blow out of some other stock because remember you're early in your career and Hogan is probably selling a lot more in the eyes of the retailer. Right. And so they're trying to make sure that they get through the additional stock. Like it's so interesting, the nuance of why this stuff is happening. Um, but in the meantime, you're over so enormously that it ends up uh, being in their favor and that can go either way. <laughs> well, and that, and that's the funny thing. And then my other favorite one was I, uh, uh, they came into they were doing kind of a, a, a gimmick like, OK, so we're going to do Goldberg is going to be like uh, have a jackhammer like he's a construction guy and you're going to be like the Lionheart and you're going to be the oh, sorry, the lion tamer and we're going to package you with a lion and you're going to be like a circus performer. I was like, oh, that sounds really cool. And when they actually delivered it, if you could see in the corner, the, the, <laughs> the lion is about the size of a house cat. I'm posting the picture right now. I'll post it online when you guys see it. So. I was like, <laughs> that's what I got. The house cat, that's nothing. <laughs> but um, like I said, man, it's always great to have uh, the figures come out. And it's something that I never take for granted because there's so many of them. But kids still come up to you. And can you sign this? And I figured out a way to sign the chest or sign the back. Like, it really does still mean something, even if it's a figure from 20 years ago. Oh, yeah. And by the way, that's one of the things that was so great about classic superstars is that you know you were doing deals and giving people the opportunity to have another stream of revenue that they otherwise wouldn't necessarily have and they were being celebrated in ways that they weren't necessarily celebrated before. So I love that, man. I just, I love it. I love it. I love the fact that we're part of the whole uh, culture and uh, it's just, it's been a blast for me and very thankful to be a part of it. Last question for you, Jeremy, all the stuff that you collect, what's your uh, kind of the, the crowning jewel of your collection? I'll, I'll give you two. Actually, I'll give you three. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm going to belabor this. The first is the fact that I recently purchased a first print, first edition Harry Potter book. There's only 500 of them made when JK did the deal with her publisher. And 300 of them went to British libraries and they were thrashed. And 200 went to young kids and they were thrashed. And then somehow I ended up with a Jim Mint one. I paid $193,000 for it. Oh my God. <laughs> so that's one. Two is um, about a, a little over a year and a half ago, I bought a uh, Pokemon uh, all PSA 10, 103 cards, 1999 first edition set. And there's only 12 of these perfect sets in the registry. Uh, I paid $120,000 for it. And it just traded last night at $665,000. Wow. And then third, uh, I actually have a show and tell for you. That uh, that I'm gonna take out of uh, oh yeah, I'll take it out of package. So last night, a 1983 Andre the Giant Wrestling Superstars PS uh, BGS nine and a half to sold for fifty thousand dollars, right? But ten years prior, uh, there was wow. a publication in 1973. So this is his real rookie card, 
that made these cards um, very rare. There's only four of these in, a, in the world in a PSA 10 condition, and it's Andre the Giant from 73. And I'll show you one interesting element. You see between his legs that weird thing there? Yeah, what that, is that? That, that is a plug. That is a wall socket. <laughs> so you can see the production value was exceptional. <laughs> How much is that card worth? I mean, I'm going to say that this is probably thirty to $50,000. Jeez, man. Yeah. Yeah, That's look, collectibles. It turned out to be something that uh, no one ever chastised me as a kid for for being in the collectible, but for, for loving collectibles. Nobody ever chastised me. Um, it was very you, supportive. No one threw my stuff away. You were lucky because my mom sold all my Star Wars figures at a garage sale when I moved out of the house. I was like, ah, no. It's like, you never, you don't play with them anymore. It's not the point. You keep them. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> now we probably know what happened to your comic books. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Jeremy, thanks for talking with me, man. This has been great. And I look forward to uh, seeing some more of the figures coming out. And you're going to now uh, help me uh, grow my collectible collection so that I can make big bucks like you. Yeah, absolutely. I'm here at your disposal. I'm of service and uh, I'm excited to be uh, in your sphere of humanity. My broker, my collectibles <laughs> broker. Thanks, dude. Thank you very much.